Okay, technically I'm not even supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be in Miami, Florida, but uh, the Lord had different plans. So you wonder how I got into chapel. Well, missionary Seth Fulkers was scheduled to come and preach, uh, but uh, he is not able to with some illness, and so he will be coming a week from today. I just switched places with him since I uh, was able to be here, and so that's a little bit of what's going on. I want to do, uh, if the Lord will allow here, I just want to start a series I'd like to do on faith here before our Christmas holidays. There's a few chapels that I do have. And uh, just dealing with something I know many times is an emphasis here, but different things that hopefully will be a help. And today I want to deal with the, really the trying of your faith, the trying of your faith. Let's go to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter number 22. And I suppose when I was in college, one of the things I did not understand was the trying of your faith. I understood that it was a biblical concept, but I felt like I was going through a lot of trials of faith in college, particularly in the inner life as I was trying to uh, seek the Lord and figure out how, how the Christian life worked. And uh, so there's many truths that God teaches you along the way, and this is a very important one, the trying of your faith. Uh, true faith will always be tried. In fact, as we find in James chapter 1, the only way you can grow in your Christian life to maturity is for your faith to be tried. Without your faith being tried, you'll never become a mature believer. It's absolutely necessary to become a mature believer. Just kind of like it is, you can't become strong without resistance. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, those of you guys that go into the weight room, don't look like many of you do, but anyway, uh, for those of you that go into the weight room, now you got to, sometimes it can be subtle because farm boys don't look strong, but they are. And farm girls don't look strong, but they are too. Okay, never arm wrestle a farm girl. Just want to tell you guys never do that. Okay, but anyway, uh, but uh, if you go into the weight room, guess what you're going to encounter? You're going to encounter resistance. But in order for you to grow, uh, to get stronger, you have to have resistance. And uh, that doesn't matter whatever it does in life. And uh, so it is with the Christian life, uh, those muscles of faith have to be tried. There has to be resistance. And uh, uh, one thing about the trying of faith is this. Your faith is never tried when you can see. It is only tried when you can't see. Let's for a moment consider Peter. You remember Peter? Did Peter believe that Jesus was the Messiah? And the answer is... Yeah, absolutely. Remember that in Matthew 16? He said to the Lord, who do men say that I am? And he says, thou art the Christ. Okay, you're a Messiah. He absolutely believed with all of his heart that Jesus Christ was Messiah. Now, his problem was this. His conception of Messiah was not biblical. Now, he thought it was. His conception of Messiah was Jesus coming back and setting up his kingdom and ruling from Jerusalem. So, in his mind, you know what Jesus was going to have to do, don't you? He was going to have to defeat the Romans. And he's going to have to throw off the yoke of Roman rule and set up his kingdom. That was Peter's conception of the Messiah. It was many Jewish conception of Messiah. In other words, they saw the second coming, but they missed the first. Okay, in other words, before Jesus would ever come to deliver his people from the Romans, he would come to deliver his people from their sins. Okay, they missed that one. So he was certainly looking for the Lord to come and set up his kingdom. But what happened? Well, we all know what happened. That still is to come. And Jesus, of course, came, was betrayed, uh, taken. And, and the Lord Jesus tried to tell Peter that. Remember that in Matthew 16? From this time forth began the Lord to say unto the disciples how, many, how he must needs go in Jerusalem and there be crucified and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to say, and be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and he said, get thee behind me, anybody know? Satan. See, at that point, we were already beginning, Peter was already dealing with this paradox Okay, as far as he was concerned, when Jesus was talking about being betrayed and being crucified and being killed, that wasn't a part of his concept of Messiah. He said, Lord, be it far from thee. You're going to set up your kingdom. You're going to rule from Jerusalem. Be it far from thee. 
And then he realized that he was being influenced by the enemy. Now, we come to a little bit later in his life. I want you to look at Luke chapter number 22. Luke chapter number 22. And I'm just going to entitle this message, Satan's Sifting of Saints. I have preached this in the past year, but I think many of you have not heard it. But I think at this particular time, if we just review this, it may be a help. It says in verse 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan had desire to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. We all know what was about to happen. Uh, Peter was about to deny the Lord three times, and he was going to be sifted like he had never been sifted. And I want us to really deal with the sifting of saints because Peter, Peter is a very good example of what happened. He was expecting Jesus to come as Messiah, set up rule, reign from Jerusalem, and Jesus was crucified. And uh, in that time, uh, Peter, of course, his faith was tried and in a remarkable way. Satan went after him and sifted him as we're going to find out what that means here in a moment. And uh, we all know that he came through, and I believe partially because the Lord prayed for him. But uh, it was a sore trial, in fact, so sore that he denied the Lord three times. Now, many of us can relate with this. What was Peter's problem? And uh, I want to deal with that, and then we'll go into the text. Peter's problem was the problem of paradox, paradox. Okay, I know some of you, it's not two medical doctors. Okay, what is a paradox? Okay, a paradox is a seeming contradiction. It's something on the surface that doesn't seem right. It contradicts. As you study it, realize there is no contradiction, but it seems to be one, like a conservative Democrat. That's a paradox. Okay, there aren't really any today, but back when I was growing up, there was a guy named Larry McDonald, who some people believe was assassinated in uh, the uh, Korean Air uh, uh, accident years ago. Uh, blow, uh, the flight, some disappeared. But anyway, he was a Democrat, but he was ex- is more conservative than most Republicans are. Okay, so uh, there are such a thing as a conservative Democrat, mostly in the past now. They call them blue dogs down in the South. How many knew that? How many knew what I was talking about? Okay, a few of you do. Okay, but um, uh, so that's a paradox. Sometimes, uh, uh, like uh, for a few years, many years, it was Cubs and World Series in the same sentence. That would be a paradox. Okay, now that's all solved. Now that paradox has been resolved. But um, so a seeming contradiction, a paradox. And that's exactly what Peter was living in. He was living in, Jesus is going to come, he's going to set up his rule and reign. Of course, we're going to reign with him, this is going to be wonderful, and now Jesus is being crucified. See, that didn't fit into his plans. We know that, again, Matthew 16 very clearly says it. He never got it resolved, there in Matthew, even though Jesus tried to help him resolve it. This is what's going to happen. And he's saying, no, Lord, be it far from thee. And Jesus turns, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan was already sifting him. So what does it mean to be sifted as wheat, okay? Because that's what Satan does to each one of you. He wants to sift you as wheat. Now, it's very important, okay, this is where English comes in, and English is very important even in studying the Bible. There's that little word, as. So what does that teach us about this sifting? And that is, it's a metaphor. Okay, he's using the picture of wheat being sifted to help us understand how faith can be sifted. Now, um, I uh, am certainly... Not an agriculture guy, okay? I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Closest thing I ever came to agriculture was live next to a cornfield. <laughs> okay, that was it. And uh, I grew up in Chicago for four years, first through fourth grade. I was in the inner city of Chicago, could basically reach out the window and touch the next door neighbor's house. There'd be a gangway, they called it, in between the houses. So that's where I grew up. So I really didn't learn where milk came from until the fifth grade. Uh, comes from the store, right? No, I'm just teasing. Okay, but anyway. Okay, so I was a city slicker uh, as they come. So agriculture is not my thing, and particularly wheat, like they don't grow wheat in Illinois or Wisconsin. Uh, Some places, obviously, they do. Kansas is known for wheat. But um, 
So I really couldn't tell you a lot about that particular process. But I remember when I was studying for this particular text of Scripture, I came to Strong's Concordance, and it had a figurative definition for the word sift. And I was kind of stunned by that. Normally you don't find a figurative definition, but there was. And the figurative definition was this, to riddle. To riddle. I thought about that. To riddle. Sift. To riddle. Kind of seems kind of an interesting analogy. And uh, I brought, it brought me back to when I was a little kid. And I, I hate to admit this, but I'm going to admit it. I remember I was either four, four years old, five years old, or six years old. It was one of those ages, probably four or five. I remember sitting down in the den in our home in Durango, Colorado. And I remember we had an old, huge television. The thing was huge, black and white. Uh, this is back when televisions were a piece of furniture. Anybody remember that? When televisions were a piece of furniture. Okay, you had to dust them with something called pledge. Okay, I guess Brother Himes is about the only one that knows what I'm talking about, and Pastor probably does, maybe Brother Swanson. But anyway, and I uh, had this big, huge television, and I remember we turned it on, and we were watching the very first episode, is it all in black and white, of Batman and Robin. Now, I'm telling you, as a little kid, I was absolutely plugged in. I mean, this was unbelievable stuff. High-tech, I mean, it was high-tech. At the end of it, they had a fight, and it had boom and pow and kabowie all over the screen, and we just thought that was unbelievably high-tech. You know, we were... And then, of course, a week later, same bat time, same bat channel, I was back watching the Cape Crusader. Uh, now, I know many of you, unfortunately, are not, or maybe fortunately, are not a part of that aura, which is probably a good thing. Okay, but anyway, I soon learned, even as a little kid, that every episode, there was a villain. There was a villain. And um, there were pretty neat villains, like Mr. Freeze. He was pretty cool, no pun intended. But anyway, I uh, had Mr. Freeze. And then uh, you had Catwoman, and you had the Joker. Uh, but one that was actually my favorite was a guy named the Riddler. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody at all? The Riddler. Okay. And I found out later he had a, a green outfit. I thought it was gray, okay, black and white, but it was actually green. A green outfit. And does anybody know what was all over that green outfit? And the answer is question marks. Yeah, all over the Riddler was question marks. Okay, I thought about that for a moment in light of our text here. To riddle, I've wondered, and I think it fits the uh, text very well, uh, Satan desired to do what to Peter? And that is riddle him with question marks. You see, Satan always wants to put a question mark where God puts a period. Have you ever noticed that? And often what he takes in life is he takes the paradoxes of life. And in those paradoxes, he throws question marks to try to question our faith. Now let's first of all see if this interpretation bears up under the context. So let's go back to the text. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to sift, uh, that he may sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you that your what? Faith. Fail not. So whatever sifting is, it's an attack on faith. So it seems to indicate that if we're talking about putting question marks where there ought to be a period, well, that seems to, that seems to fit what the text is talking about. When I think of Ephesians chapter 6, I think of the same dynamic. Remember there when the Bible talks about Satan throwing or the, the wicked one throwing fiery darts. Well, what are those fiery darts? Could it be that those fiery darts are simply question marks? Well, think about what quenches them. What quenches them? And the answer is faith. Well, faith obviously quenches doubt, so that makes sense that Satan's fiery darts are question marks. Where there ought to be periods, Satan throws question marks. So what I'd like to do in the balance of the message is give you paradoxes, and there are more than I'll give you today, paradoxes where Satan tries to throw you question marks. 
And you need to be aware of that. And this is exactly what happened to Peter. And we certainly know that Peter, uh, for a while, his faith faltered. Now, thank the Lord it did not ultimately fail. In a moment, at the end of the message, we'll come back to Peter because we've left him right now weeping before the Lord after he's denied the Lord three times. And he, uh, he is obviously in the moment of a, a trial of faith. He is not seeing it. Okay, so first of all, there's going to be what I'm going to call the paradox of suffering. The paradox of suffering. Now, of course, the whole book of Job is a, a whole book of the Bible written to deal with this particular paradox, one that Job faced. Why? Why, Lord? All of us in life have asked that question. Why? Difficulties. Now, one thing I've thought about the paradox of suffering, the moment you see God's finger in it, it ceases to be a paradox. For instance, uh, back in 2005 when I wrecked my RV, uh, going down the road, a, a, a one-year-old RV, uh, 20, I think, nine-footer, uh, it was a box trailer, uh, travel trailer towed behind the, the one-ton van that we had. Make a long story. I won't go into the whole story. I've said it before. When we wrecked that thing, and uh, our, you know, the thing was completely collapsed, it fell over, and it just, just it literally, uh, it, uh, well, to be honest with you, came off the hitch, and it, uh, was, it, it was going so fast, it fell over, and it cartwheeled. If you can imagine that, an RV cartwheeling like this. The reason we know a cartwheel is because the back was where the front should have been. It was completely reversed, and of course it was wreckage. All four walls were just collapsed, uh, and the frame, of course, turned over and uh, went uh, uh, chained, was continued to chain to the van, but the, the RV was completely destroyed. Now, there was a few moments, of course, just totally being stunned, and a few moments of paradox, but honestly, the paradox didn't last long. You know why? Because I began to see miracles right off the bat. I mean, literally within an hour and a half or so, I'm getting a phone call from a guy by the name of Mike Holmes. I hadn't seen him in years. He has a ministry out in Sinclair, Wyoming. We were about 30 miles away. He said, Brother Van Gilder, heard about your wreck. Don't ask me how. Heard about your wreck. And he said, we got, a, we got lodging for you. We got a meal for you. I got a U-Haul you can borrow. It was like boom, boom, boom. And then we began to see God do thing after thing after thing. And it was a remarkable story. I've written it out. So many answers to prayer. So many things happened. It wasn't long after it wasn't a trial at all. You know why? Because it became sight. I was beginning to say, oh, now I see what God's doing. We had, uh, uh, we had uh, an evangelist friend of mine who sent a word out, and donations began to come, out, come in. And there are so many things God did that we were able to switch to a truck and a trailer, and uh, really it didn't cost anything. I mean, God provided for everything. It became sight. So that began to be, uh, it was for a few moments, I would say, it was a trial because I couldn't see what God was doing, but I didn't have to wait long. So sometimes that happens, but normally that's not the way it is. Normally, the trial, the suffering, the question marks, Lord, why? Now, here's what I'm simply saying. It's at those moments when you can't figure out, Lord, it's like this. It's when you're, you know you're in a paradox when verses like all things work together for good are verses that are hard because they don't seem to work right now. It, it'd be like this. I know most of you uh, in college, this happens on a regular basis how many of you would say within the last month you've had a bad day? Can I see your hands, ladies? You've had a bad day. Okay. Everybody knows what a bad day is. It always starts when you don't get up on time. Have you ever noticed that? You never have a bad day if you get up on time. Okay. It might be tough, but it's not bad. It's when you don't get up on time, and then things start to go downhill. You know how it is. Let's just imagine it for a moment. You know how it is. You, you get up late, and you're running around the dorm, and, and you get, uh, get dressed, and you had the, the breakfast, and you look down, and you got two different color socks on. You know what I'm talking about. You couldn't see it in the dark. And, and you're sitting there with your bowl of cereal, and you knock uh, the table, and then it goes everywhere, you know, all over everybody. And everybody's ticked off at you, and you're ticked off at yourself. And you know what I'm talking about? Just one of those days. And your mom calls and said the dog died. You know what I'm talking about. 
just one of those days. You know, your, your grades, the quiz didn't go well. You studied the wrong chapter. You know how it is. <laughs> just one of those days. and Everything's going bad. And, and then your mom calls and says the cat died. Well, that's not too bad. You didn't like the cat. Okay, but, uh, you know, just one of those days, everything's going down. And I mean, finally, you know, one of your roommates kind of sees you down a little bit and glibly pats you on the back and says, hallelujah, brother, hallelujah, sister. All things work together for good. Now, what do you want to do at that very moment? Do you want to hug your brother or sister in Christ and thank them for being so helpful at that very moment? Now, normally, you want to slap them upside the head. Okay, now, you don't do that, but you want to. Why? It's not that you don't believe that verse. You believe the verse. What's the problem? You're having a hard time reconciling what you're going through with all things work together for good. You ever been there? That's paradox. Because it doesn't look like all things are working together for good. Now, have you ever noticed that that moment of paradox is when Satan throws question marks? Does God really love you? Does, is, are these things really going to work together for good? Um, is this, I mean, how can you praise God for this? He, he wants to put those question marks. And friends, at the, those moments of paradox that you and I are extremely vulnerable to the question mark. And I'm just going to warn you, when life, when you get out of ministry, the same thing happens. You can be involved in an unbelievable ministry week or whatever, and all of a sudden things are starting to happen and thinking, why, Lord, this doesn't make sense, and all kinds of things. And sometimes that paradox stays for a while. There's no reconciliation with it. And those moments are vulnerable for Satan to throw those question marks into your heart. I've, I know you've been there. I've been there. We've all been there. But it's important to understand paradox is going to make you vulnerable for question marks from Satan. Now, the paradox of suffering is one you hear about, preached on a lot. So I'm going to move on to a couple of other paradoxes that maybe aren't so, you maybe aren't so aware of. Number two paradox, the paradox of a subscriptural experience. The paradox of a subscriptural experience. In other words, there's certain things the Bible tells us that you may find, I don't know if I'm experiencing that in my life. How about this verse? Thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. Is that verse true? Well, it absolutely is true. You say, well, then what about the person who you got that, but they're living below that. They're not triumphing in everything. Well, we all know it's because they're not living in the reality of who they are in Christ. We get that. But sometimes what happens in that moment of paradox, sometimes Satan will come along and throw, well, it may be for others, but it won't be for you. You can't live that way. Or God, God really didn't care about you. You're not going to have victory like that other person. Maybe even in testimony chapel. You hear somebody giving a testimony, and that's never been your experience. And Satan comes along, tries to throw you. That's not for you. You can't do that. Yeah, that'll never happen in your life. You won't see victory like that. All I'm simply saying, trying to say, friends, is Satan is always trying to do things, get you to question the Word of God and getting you to question God's character. He's always throwing you question marks. But he particularly is effective in the moments of paradox, particularly when you're defeated. You're defeated. See, many times people don't even realize that they live such a subscriptural level that they have got ways, for instance, how do I put this? We know for years there was a theology that was a very popular about 100 years ago called the doctrine of sinless perfectionism. And if you ever take a sanctification in the seminary, I'm sure that will be dealt with, the doctrine of sinless perfectionism. Now, I think most of us realize that that, that doctrine is not very popular today. You know why? Because it didn't work. <laughs> okay, it didn't work. Okay. In other words, people would come to a point where they say, I'm never going to sin again. And of course, they would. 
and then they would redefine sin and dumb down the definition of sin. And it was a problematic issue. And of course, today there are a few people, and a lot of those doctrines have even been kind of re, kind of re, reworked, okay, because of uh, of exactly how they didn't work, etc. Okay, now that that doctrine is one we don't struggle with. But you know what we do struggle with? The doctrine of sinful imperfectionism. You know what that doctrine is? Well, everybody sins. I mean, everybody struggles. Nobody's perfect. I, okay, now here's the point. I want to ask you a question. Anytime you're tempted, do you have to sin? And the answer is, no. Why? Because there's a way out. The Bible says every temptation, there's a way out. So just like the doctrine of sin, sinless perfectionism, that you can reach a point where you never sin is problematic, because the Bible tells us we're going to have a flesh-spirit struggle the day we die. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Okay, we get that side. But now we've moved to the other side where we excuse sin. Well, everybody's going to struggle. But the point is, every single one of us in this room should understand that even though we recognize there's a battle with sin to the day we die, every time we do sin, we didn't have to. There was a way out. So the paradox of subscriptural experience is just justifying your defeat and just allowing Satan to throw. And what do you throw at you to throw? He wants to throw darts in your heart so that you doubt that you can ever, ever have victory over fill in the blank. Some of you struggle with just unbelief. Some struggle with worry, which is unbelief. Some struggle with uh, other uh, sinful issues in your life, anger and frustration, which is unbelief. And all of them go back to unbelief. And the point is simply this. Satan wants you to surrender, and he wants you to come to the point, I'll never have victory over that. See, that's a paradox of subscriptural experience. Well, I know the Bible says that, but it's not for me. I can't live that. You know, my parents had issues, and, and they were angry, and I bought, I bought into their anger, and I just struggle with it, okay? That's, that's what he wants you to do. Satan's really throwing that dart into your heart to get you to doubt that victory is for you, that you can have victory over whatever it is. The insecurity, the feelings of worthlessness, we've talked a lot about that last few years. Whatever it might be, my point is Satan wants to get you to doubt God's provision of victory is for you. He doesn't care if you believe it's for other people. He just doesn't want to believe it's for you. See, the doctrine of subscriptural experience, excusing your failure, excusing your defeat, and allowing Satan to do that. How about this one, evangelism? Uh, I think if I were to, I'm going to set you up, if I can tell you I'm setting you up just so you know you're being set up, so I want you to know that, so go right into it with an open mouth. Okay, so here it is. How many of you believe that God's grace is sufficient? Can I see your hands, please? Just put them up here. Okay, here it is. You can put your hands down. How many believe that the fields are white, ready to be harvested? Can I see your hands, please? Okay, great. And how many of you believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Can I see your hands, please? Okay, you know I just set you up, didn't I? If we really believe all three of those things, what will we do? We will give the gospel with expectation that it'll work. Doesn't mean everybody we talk to will get saved, but we're expecting the gospel to be powerful in every life, every time it's given. Does that make sense? So do we live that way? No, we don't. Why? Why do we not live that way? I'm going to tell you why. Because we allow experience pardon the expression, to trump, no pun intended to our president, but anyway, we make experience that will trump uh, what the Bible says. You're about out soul winning, you get the door slammed in your face. How many have ever had the door slammed in your face? Okay, put your hands down. You know what you have a tendency to do? Think everybody's going to slam the door in your face. Have you ever noticed that? Kind of one defeat spawns, another defeat spawns, and before the end, before what, what happens after a while is you're expecting defeat. You're expecting rejection. 
You're expecting people not to listen. You're expecting the gospel not to be powerful. What we've done at that point is we've allowed the paradox of a subscriptural experience to define uh, what we believe instead of letting the Bible define what we believe. See, Satan always wants you to uh, allow your experience to be more important to you than the truth of the Word of God. And defeated experience is a common occurrence in today's Christianity. Would you agree with me on that? <laughs> Some of you have been defeated coming into college, and maybe there's still areas of defeat in your life. Here's what I encourage you to do, is to recognize that when Satan comes along and basically says, you can't win people to Jesus, you don't have the ability to, to be used of God, or whatever the doubt is, whatever the question mark he throws into your heart, to recognize that is coming from the enemy. He is sifting you. He is putting riddles. He is putting question marks where God has put a period. So the paradox of a subscriptional experience, and it's something that many young people struggle with. Now, I, I, uh, I will tell you, there are many times in life where experience will scream at you, and you have to reject how you feel and believe what the Bible says, because it says it. Do you know that your, your, your experience could be misinterpreted? Do you realize that? In fact, many times I believe it is misinterpreted. I believe the guy that shuts the slams the door in your face may be the closest guy to salvation. I was reading the story or somewhere or hearing the story. I can't remember where it was. Now, I need to come find it again because it was really interesting. It was a guy, uh, oh, yeah, it was Brother King. Some of you were here when he preached, and he was talking about his first time out soul winning. It was with a real soul winner guy, and he knocks on the door, and the lady screams at him, yells at him, and tells him to get off the porch and whatever, and he goes around to the back door. Now, I don't know about you. I don't think I'd have gone to the back door. What do you think? I thought, well, those days. And he rings the back door, and the lady comes, and, and, uh, and he had some funny line about, man, you're, you're not as ugly as the lady in the front door. But anyway, something like that. I mean, and the lady started laughing, and he led her to Jesus. Now, what was the deal there? That soul winner was an experienced soul winner. You know what he decided to believe? He decided to believe that God's Word was more true than his defeated experience, or what seemed to be defeated experience. See, many times we allow that defeated experience to define us. And uh, so many times it happened. I think I've given the story here about the young man I came to after one of our war nights and started to talk. He showed no interest in the gospel. So much so I said, let me find somebody who is. And I turned, took three steps away, and the Holy Spirit arrested me and said, just basically, you need to go back and talk to that kid. It was so clear to me, I just made a U-turn, came back, I fumbled around, and I was trying to find my bearings, and I was trying to get back on, and it was, really felt kind of uh, completely... Uh, just ridiculous, and it's like the Lord opened a door a Mack truck could have driven through. The kid looked at me and says, you know what, I just came to this thing for my grandfather's funeral. <laughs> and it was like the Lord said, okay, there's the door, oh, go through it. And I looked at him and I said, you know what, I bet you you're thinking about death. And I bet you you're wondering where you're going to spend eternity. I said, wouldn't you like to know your sins are washed away, you're on your way to heaven and know it? And tears began to come down his cheeks. He said, yes, I would. That kid was this close to being saved, and I thought he wasn't even close at all. If the Holy Spirit had arrested me, I'd have missed that opportunity. <laughs> Within a half an hour, he was wondrously saved. See, our subscriptural experiences Satan uses to throw darts. The gospel's not that powerful. The fields really aren't ready. God's grace isn't sufficient. Now, we never say that out loud, but in essence, that's what he is getting us to question. So you see that? Number two, the paradox of a subscriptural experience. Number three, the paradox of spiritual deception. The paradox of spiritual deception. Now, I bring this one in simply because for some of you out here, I, um, I know that you, uh, you really do have a sensitive heart. And I, I've got an overly sensitive heart, and I shouldn't say overly, but sometimes I feel like it's overly sensitive. And those of you that have an overly sensitive heart can be, if you're not careful, wide open to satanic counterfeit. 
satanic counterfeit. Do you know I call it counterfeit conviction? Do you know that Satan, the Bible calls it accusing. I'm going to use the word conviction to help us see it as a counterfeit. Do you know Satan has conviction? And Satan will try to convict you and try to get you to feel bad about something that God doesn't want you to feel bad about. And uh, that that counterfeit conviction, you say, well, how do you know the difference? Well, one thing I can always tell you about counterfeit conviction, counterfeit conviction always causes you to doubt clear statements of the Word of God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you come before the Lord with genuine honesty and you get honest with God and you confess your sins in the sense that you agree with God about your sin, the Bible says you need to get off your knees whether or not you feel it or not. Say, hallelujah, thank you that you've forgiven my sins and I'm cleansed. But you know Satan will often come along at that moment and say, God hasn't forgiven you. You can't can't forgive that. That's too bad. And you know what many times we do? We believe it. (laughs) See, Satan is always trying to get you to doubt the Word of God. And satanic conviction does that. And remember, when Satan convicts you, he drives you to despair. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, he drives you to hope. That's how you tell the difference. Satan always brings you to Calvary, and uh, excuse me, Satan always brings you to Sinai, and Jesus always brings you to Calvary. See, that's how you know. The Holy Spirit will always take you to Jesus, but the spirit of the Satan will always take you the opposite direction. He'll take you to the law. He'll take you to condemnation. He'll take you to no hope, to despair. So uh, there's that. There's even for some of you that are highly sensitive. I've learned this early in my life the hard way. Some, I think Satan sometimes even has what we might call satanic counterfeit leadership. Well, he will lead you, and usually he does that in a way where he just will not let you go. He just, how do I say this? He's just like a fly or a gnat that you just can't get rid of. And, you know, you need to do this, do this, do this. And I've been in situations where I went back and did what it was and it didn't turn out at all. I realized later on, I wonder if that was not the Lord at all. See, God is light and in Him is what? No darkness at all. So when the Holy Spirit's leading, there, you start following Him, there's joy, there's peace, there's not constraint, particularly if you have a willing heart, there's not constraint. And it's not badgering you. Is leading you. Remember, the Holy Spirit leads, Satan drives. Okay, there's a difference between driving, driving cattle and leading sheep. We all know a pastor is supposed to lead, he's not supposed to drive. Okay, but Satan will drive you. In other words, uh, he'll uh, try to get you on some guilt trip to get you to do something, then when you do it, there's nothing there. Like going knocking on a certain door and nobody's there. <laughs> Certain things happen and you realize, I don't know the Lord was in that. Like, for instance, when that situation where I took three steps, God arrested me, said, go back and talk to the guy. I knew it was God, turned around and talked to the guy, and the guy got saved. So I want to ask you a question. Do you think that was Satan or God? And the answer is, well, that was God. It was so clearly God. You begin to realize God works. I don't know how to explain it. Even when I turned, there was a joy, there was a peace, there was a sense God's going to work. I don't know how to explain it. So the paradox of satanic counterfeit. Why does Satan counterfeit God? Because he wants to discredit God. That's what he's out to do. And for some of you that aren't sensitive at all, you have no clue what I'm talking about. But everybody out here that's really sensitive, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because Satan has yanked you around sometimes with your sensitive conscience. And you've sometimes just getting up and I can't follow the Lord. I don't know what's God and what's not. Okay? What he's trying to do is to get you to doubt God. God always leads differently than Satan. Once you learn the difference, you can you live a, a very restful Christian life with peace and not worrying about that anymore. But the point is, there's satanic counterfeit. I don't have time to fully develop it. But there's a very real satanic counterfeit, particularly people that begin to grow and begin to open to the spiritual realm. You cannot have a counterfeit of something you don't know. In other words, if I were to go over to Cambodia and somebody gave me a counterfeit bill, I would think it's real because I don't know the real one. 
So the point is, you've got to have a relationship with God, know the spiritual realm in order for Satan to begin to counterfeit that. For many uh, believers that begin to understand the spiritual realm, they don't realize that they're open to satanic counterfeit. At that very vulnerable moment, as they begin to open up the spiritual realm, they are open to a counterfeit they've never experienced before. Because now they're experiencing the reality of God's presence. The spiritual realm's opened up to them. And Satan will sometimes come along and try to counterfeit, to discredit God, to people just to give up on following the Holy Spirit's leadership in their life. Okay, don't have time to fully develop it. Hopefully that helps some of you. I'd be glad to talk to anybody more that feels like that's my problem. I feel like Satan is always yanking me to do things. And I wonder if it's God or Satan. And, I, and it, one of the t ways you can tell that is if you're not at peace, if you're in agony, if you're confused, that's not God. <laughs> Okay, God's a God of peace and a God of rest, and following Him is always that way. Okay, well, hopefully that helps. So, number three. Number four. Okay, so first of all, the paradox of suffering, subscriptural experience, the paradox of a, a spiritual deception or counterfeit, and last but not least, the counterfeit of supra logic. Supra logic. Doesn't that sound cool, doesn't it? Okay, this is now we're in seminary. Yes, supra logic. Okay, you say, what's that? That's logic that is above finiteness. I want to ask you a question. Do you think God is logical? Now, there's a difference between uh, something, let me give you something that's illogical. Okay, that would be God is light, God is not light. Okay, that's illogical. Okay, so we understand that. Okay, man has a free will, man does not have a free will. That is not, uh, that is not logical. Okay, so, so you understand that there are certain things even as finite human beings we understand that's not, that's not that, can't, that can't be. And we all understand that. Okay, but super logic is different. Super logic is logic that is above finiteness. Okay, now all of us are finite. But God is logical in a way that finiteness cannot always comprehend. <laughs> that's why the Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter number 11, His ways, help me out now, are past finding out. There are certain things, certain things about God, because we're finite, we'll never totally comprehend. Like one of them is pretty obvious, the eternality of God. God has no beginning, He has no end, He lives in every moment of time at the same time. There's no way you and I can comprehend that. There's no way you can comprehend a being who's always existed, always will exist, lives in every moment of time. That you can't comprehend it. You cannot comprehend it. It's impossible. And even our world can't comprehend it, because all the superheroes that the world creates, none of them are even close to who God is. They're all finite. See? So God's beyond all that, so much so that human, humanity can't even comprehend it. Okay, so what are you trying to say? What am I trying to say? I'm trying to simply say this. Years ago, I heard of, of, a, uh, of, of a guy who was a senior at a Bible college. Unfortunately, Calvinism had gotten into a school, hyper-Calvinism had gotten into a school, and here's what he said his senior year. He said, my freshman year, I was out on the strip trying to win people to Jesus who God didn't want to save anyway. Do you know what happened to that guy? Paradox of super logic. He could not figure out the paradox between man's free will and God's sovereignty. So you know what he did? He went to finitely try to explain God's sovereignty in doing so. He completely negated certain clear statements of Scripture like, God's not willing that any should perish. That's a statement that has to fit into your theology. God wants all men to be saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth. You have to fit that verse there in Timothy. You have to fit that into your theology. So any theology that comes along and says God does not interest in saving those people anyway is a theology that has succumbed to the paradox of superlogic. And Satan has come along and thrown a dart of doubt into a clear statement of Scripture that God's not willing that it should perish. So they now doubt that. 
And that's one of the things you have to understand for those of you that will get in deeper into theology. There are a lot of paradoxes in theology. Why? Because God's bigger than you are. And one of the things that is very important in theology to understand is God's so big, He's got it figured out even if you can. And even in your finiteness, if it's hard to hold on to man's free will and God's sovereignty, sometimes you feel like you're in a tension point. But if someone is well put, the, the truth is at the apex of the theological tension. That's where the truth is. And you and I cannot always articulate it. We say, believe this. Sometimes I feel like I'm preaching. I'm, I'm preaching one side. Sometimes I'm preaching like I'm preaching the other side because they're both in the Bible. <laughs> and if you carry them to logical extreme, you'll get into error. Because human logic will lead you into error because human logic is finite. God's logic is infinite. He's got it reconciled. Man's free will and God's sovereignty. He's got it all figured out. And I'll be honest with you. If you've got it figured out, you haven't got it figured out. Because His ways are past finding out. See, See, Romans 9 very clearly teaches God's sovereignty. I won't go into all of Romans 9. There are many different views on that of which I'll not go into. Romans 10 clearly teaches human responsibility. And Romans chapter 11 says His ways are past finding out. Okay, if you're an evangelist, you learn how to solve theological problems in 60 seconds or less. Okay, we just solved it right there. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, I'm okay with that. You okay with that? So, but Satan will come along and he's done a masterful job today to use theology to cause people to question clear statements of Scripture. That always has the fingerprints of the devil on it. The paradox, it's just even the same in revival. You know, sometimes people say, is God sovereign in revival? Well, in a certain sense, God's sovereign about everything. But on the other hand, then what is, is, is revival a promised response? In other words, in the Bible, does God tell us that there's certain things that if we'll trust God about and take steps of faith, that God will, God will do reviving work? And the answer is, well, yeah, absolutely. I don't have time to go into it all. So there's tension in all of this. So somebody comes along and says, you can pray, you can fast, you can do what you want, you can take steps of faith, you can believe God here, believe God here, and, and you might get revival, you might not. You know what happened on that? That's the paradox. Of super logic. And you know what Satan has done? He's made them question clear statements of Scripture. Now, I realize, friends, I don't have time to go into whole theology revival, but I do understand that sometimes, you know, uh, the measure revival we may not understand or know. But I can guarantee you this, because I've seen it now, at almost every Christian school I go into, there is some measure revival every week. Sometimes it's one kid, sometimes it's five kids, sometimes it's ten kids, sometimes it's half the school, sometimes it's almost the whole school. But the point is, the essence of revival is occurring at that moment. You see it, okay? It, at that point, is just a school-wide revival. My burden in time is to see this thing spill out and see it affect a greater measure. We all are burdened for that. But my point is simply this. I believe with all my heart, revival is not something you sit around and hope will come. There are means that God has given us. Faith means that God has given us that if you believe, take steps of faith in following Jesus about, God will always do a reviving work. I can't tell you the extent of it. I can just tell you it's going to happen. In other words, I don't go into Christian school hoping there'll be revival. I know there'll be revival somewhere. It may just be one, but there's going to be something happen. Why? Because God honors His Word. So there's aspects of sovereignty. I don't know. It's like this. I don't know on a cornfield, you plant corn and it comes up. And I don't know, depending on the rain that comes in, there's certain sovereign elements in planting a corn uh, field that God has a part. There's certain human elements. We get all that. But when it comes right down to it, in order for you to reap corn, there's got to be miracles. That's the way it is spiritually. There's got to be miracles. 
But because God is a God who answers His word and promises a response, we can expect them to occur. So the paradox of super logic is when we try to figure out what God says we can't. And in doing so, we will question clear statements of Scripture, trying to be theologically logical completely. And uh, systematic theology, I'm all for systematic theology, but if you've got good systematic theology, you will have paradoxes throughout it. Tension throughout it. And that's okay. In fact, I think that's a good thing. And here at BCM, I hope you'll understand the importance of developing a theology that is biblical and has systematic theology tension points because the Bible does. And I could go into many other systematic theology tension points, but we'll leave it at that right now. So the paradox of superlogic. Now, I've got to get back here and finish. I've already gone too long. Okay, and here it is, Peter. So that's it. Peter's done, right? He's sifted his wheat. Satan nailed him to the wall. He denied the Lord three times, went out, wept. Is that the end of Peter? And the answer is No. So when do we see Peter next? And the answer is, well, we see him with Jesus a few times, but the next dramatic moment we see is in Acts 2 where he preaches the Pentecost uh, sermon at the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 people are saved. Like, whoa, what happened to Peter? Well, I'll tell you what happened to Peter. Do you know what he does in that message? He proves the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. Could you do that? Well, he did. Now, you know what he was doing. Remember what he was doubting? What he was doubting. Remember what he was doubting? The death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he was doubting. So he comes back and he lifts the shield of faith. We know faith is in the Word of God. He lifts the shield of faith. The fiery darts are quenched. He's standing at Pentecost preaching his sermon. 3,000 people are saved. I don't know about you. That's really encouraging. You know, I preach a message like this. Some of you, are your faith's been tried and some darts of doubt have gotten through and you've doubted clear statements of God. You put a question mark where God's put a period. And for some of you, it's killing your Christian life. For some, it's killed you for a while. You have no power with God, no really relationship with God, and your Christian life is going nowhere fast. And I'm simply saying the answer is this. You've got to lift the shield of faith, put your confidence back in the Word of God, even though you don't understand it all, and let those fiery darts get quenched. And then you'll find yourself just like Peter, God using you in ways you never thought. But you've got to deal with the fiery darts. Could I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'm just going to ask this. Just stand to your feet if you don't mind. Stand to your feet. I'm just going to ask you to stand to your feet. Here's what I'm going to ask. I have a pianist to come and play here in a moment. If God has pointed out a fiery dart that's gotten through, if he's pointed out a question mark you've allowed in your heart, a question mark about God, does God really love me? Does he care? Is he working things together for good? Can I have victory? Can I win people to Jesus? Whatever. And God has pointed out a question mark. Let me urge you in just a moment as she plays, I want you just to sit down right where you are. And I want you to put your faith back in the Word of God that you've allowed Satan to get you to doubt. Would you do that and then stand up when you're done doing that as the piano plays?